Yesterday I finished the last look at the book on 1 Peter, so it felt like a little epic came to an end. About a hundred of those, I think, on 1 Peter. And so this is overflow from the last paragraph of 1 Peter, which most people would not do as a go-to for Christmas, <laughs> which goes, I think, like this. Uh, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon greets you, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Grace or peace be to all who are in Christ Jesus. It is amazing to me that when you get a perspective on the five chapters and he puts it in a phrase, he calls it, I have written to you briefly, this, meaning what I have written to you briefly, is the true grace of God. That's his summary. Stand in it. And I think that's amazing. This is the true grace of God. So he, he chose to sum up all that teaching. There are 35 imperatives in 1 Peter. There's heaps of suffering, lots of in, encouragement to, to suffer well in 1 Peter. And he calls it the grace of God. So here are the ways he uses it that lets you see this is not a surprise ending. This is chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired. So when the prophets looked to everything that was coming, they just said, grace. That's, that's, the, that's the name of what's coming. The grace that is to be yours, that's what we're talking about back here in the prophets. And then verse 13 of chapter 1, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. So, now here we are looking to the second coming, and that's called grace. So first coming is called grace, second coming is called grace. Not surprising then that he would end by saying, this book, I've tried to say what the true grace of God is. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are fellow heirs with you of the grace of life. So, so everything you share together in Christ, it's life now and forever, is called the grace of life. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it as good stewards of God's varied grace. So everything that's going on in this room, in terms of bending vertical blessing into horizontal conversation and ministry, is called grace. We're stewards of, of grace. And then the last one, uh, chapter 5, verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All grace. So I, I did pretty much a whole, a whole lab on what in the world is calling God a God of all grace mean. It doesn't mean he's only grace, because he's got wrath and justice. But everything we receive from him is grace. In Christ, everything is grace. So, um, 
summary of the whole book, this is the true grace of God. But when I, when I hear the word true, I ask, okay, why did he say true? Why didn't he just say this is the grace of God? Because as soon as I hear the word true grace, I think, oh, there's a false grace. He, he's like distancing himself. There's one of those and then there's this. And so I thought, no, where, where is that in the New Testament? Where is bad grace? Something that's not true grace. And Jude goes like this. Jude 1, 4. Where is it? Certain people have crept in who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord. So there was abroad in some of the churches a grace preaching that was evil. It was taking grace and making it a means of sensuality, or the old word was licentiousness. And that's alive and well today. It really is. It's an antinomian. That is, if, if, you, if, you, if you're a grace person, you don't have to do anything. There's no, there's no obedience to be thought about. Any kind of warnings that you could be in trouble are, are put aside. We, we know people who've made shipwreck because of that kind of emphasis. And I think Peter was very aware that the glorious grace of God can be distorted. Paul sums it up the same way. In Acts 14.3, the word of his grace is the summary of the gospel. Or Acts 24, uh, I want to finish my course and bear witness to the gospel of the grace of God. So the good news is summed up as the grace of God. Or Titus 2.11, and here we are coming to Christmas. Titus 2.11, when the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, so when Paul steps back in Titus and thinks about the incarnation, he describes it, grace appeared, <laughs> grace, grace showed up in a bodily form. And then the most Christmas statement of all about grace, I think probably is John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth, which triggers True grace, in my mind, from First Peter, this is the true grace. And Jesus is called in whom uh, is, is the fullness of grace and truth. Now, why, why do you have to have both? Grace, here's the way I would define it, is God's inclination and action... So you can put those two together, his, his disposition and his action to give us undeserved good, incalculable good, undeserved good, which leaves totally undefined what the good is. So, so if you just define grace as He's inclined to treat us good. He acts to bring us good. You haven't said anything very clear, which is why that other word has to come, right? Grace and, okay, tell us what the good is. I mean, we don't even know what good, what's good for us. If, if Christ isn't truth, meaning he is the light 
that sheds knowledge on what is good for us about God, what is good for us about ourselves, what's good for us about the world. We don't know the world without the truth in Christ. We don't know ourselves without truth in Christ. We don't know God without truth in Christ. We don't know what's good for us. Therefore, to talk about God doing good for us is meaningless because we don't know what's good for us. We'll go make sensuality out of grace. So if there's no truth in Jesus, we're just left hanging that he's really good for us and we have a clue what that means. Well, we do know what it means because the whole New Testament is the unpacking of who Christ is in, in truth. So this is the true grace of God. And then surrounding that statement are all these personal touches. And I want, I want this to feel really personal. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, he didn't, have to, he didn't even have to mention Silvanus because he said, I have written briefly to you. I have written briefly to you. He happened to take down the dictation, evidently. I mean, I don't know, I think it's probably just, he's a secretary. And goodness, when a CEO writes a letter to his employee, he doesn't have to mention the stenographer. He just, you don't have to do that. But for full disclosure and for a personal tribute and for a faithful brother, I'm going to say it. And I think there's a flavor there of what I, I long for us to be and what, what we are so well. I want, I want there to be absolute candor in this ministry. Candor to the people outside, candor to the people inside. No, no hidden anything. I've got this policy like, okay, can we write a letter for you and you just put your name on it? No, you can't. Our names will go on it together. If you wrote it and I shared, I tweaked it, then your name and my name go on there. That's just the way we're going to do it. So little things like that. It's just, I, I long for us to be completely candid. You don't have to mention Sylvanus, but... Yeah, let's mention Sylvanus. And let's talk about his character. And then I thought about, okay, why did, he, why did he feel like he needed to call him faithful? Because if he's just secretary and Peter could, you know, pick up the manuscript and read it and say, okay, that's good enough, send it on. He didn't even need to be faithful. He wouldn't have to be a believer. Unless maybe Peter was blind by this time. I don't know. For some reason, he felt like it's important that Sylvanus be faithful. If you're writing a letter and I'm blind and I can't ever read it, you better be faithful. Or even if I'm not blind and you write it and I check it and give it back to you, you might, on the way to give it to them, mess with it. And then I thought, wow, trust is a big issue in life. Trust is a big issue in life. You. You drive down the road 60 miles an hour this way, 60 miles an hour this way, and I'm just trusting you not to swerve. And we make decision after decision on the basis of trust, and, and as they get personal, like marriage, say, good night, wow, <laughs> 47 years. <sighs> I had no idea what we were in for, not at all what it, what it would mean, nothing. And, and you trust. So I think Peter probably wanted to get personal and say, look, it, it's Sylvanus we're talking about. 
It's faithfulness we're talking about. You know him. He's the same one that worked with Paul. There's these overlap between Paul's team and Peter's team. She who is in Babylon greets you. What's that? Almost all contemporary commentators say, code name for the church in Rome. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, greets you. You know, Alfred, my favorite 19th century commentator, thinks it's his wife. And she's really in Babylon on the Euphrates. And Mark is the name of his real biological son. And he's got arguments. And I like them. She who is in Babylon, it's just a, it's just a feminine participle, because the, the, the word church, ecclesia, is feminine in Greek, and so it's natural to call the church a she. Um, Babylon was a code name for Rome in the book of Revelation, get that. No problem at all if that's what it means. The church in Rome, where I am presently, if that's the case, uh, is sending you greetings Here's the interesting thing. Likewise chosen. The place that he referred to the churches being chosen that he's writing to is not churches. It's individuals. To those of you who are elect sojourners of the exile in Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Bithynia. Those are people. Those are individuals. She who's likewise chosen. That's, that's a pretty good argument, I think, to say if they're individuals in, in 1 1, they're probably individuals in 5 11. Here's another interesting thing. When you, when you look at the five Roman provinces that he mentions in verse 1 of chapter 1, uh, Peter, apostle to the elect sojourners of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, those are written from an Eastern perspective. You start with the one over there and go like this. If he was writing from Rome, you'd go the other way, like this. Alfred points that out. said, hmm, is that, is that valid? <laughs> here's, a, here's a third observation. Why would you go from church to Mark? She who is in Babylon greets you. So does Mark. Well, he's part of the church. I mean, what, what's... What's the reason for going to Mark, my son? Now, we know that John Mark, who was the son of Mary, in whose house Peter went in Acts 12, and who, um, according to Eusebius, was the interpreter of Peter, and so they worked hand in glove, be totally natural for him to call Mark, John Mark, my spiritual son in the faith. Not a problem. And that's what most people think. But Alfred didn't think that. He thinks he named his son after Mark. <laughs> this is his real wife and his real son. And they're living, Peter and she are in Babylon on the Euphrates because there was a big Jewish community there. We know that from Philo and we know it from Josephus and he's the apostle to the Jews. Well, I don't know the answer. I don't know which it is, but in either case, especially the reference to his son, it's personal. It's, I'm writing to all these churches in those five provinces of Rome, and I'm going to name Mark. And either the church here sends you greetings, or my wife sends you greetings, and we 
we love you. And then he tells them, greet one another with the kiss of love. Isn't it remarkable that, that a letter about suffering, a letter about affliction, would end on such an affectionate note? Um, if, you, if you go back and then look at all the places where he talks about the church as family, the church as loving each other. Listen, just get the flavor. 122, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So the love is to be sincere, the love is to be brotherly, the love is to be earnest, the love is to be pure. That, that is not your ordinary, well, I'm just going to treat you nice. That's way, way more than treat each other nice in this office, treat each other nice in the ministry. This is feel affection for each other. That's what it says. Or chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So love, the, the, the brotherhood get the word love in that list. Or 1 Peter 3, 8, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. Those are amazingly affectionate, warm, humble feelings, not just behaviors of respect. Amazing. Sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. And then chapter 4, verse 8, all above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So when he gets to the end then and he starts naming people, like she, Mark, send you greeting, he tells them to kiss each other. Greet one another with the kiss of love. And, and if you say, okay, is that a mandate? Is that a transcultural expression so that we should all be kissing each other? Or is it something more culturally adapted so that you use a culturally appropriate sign of affection? Now, my response to that question is first, well, I doubt if you even push in on Peter's day that he meant, like every time somebody goes in here, Stays one minute, walks back out. They need to kiss again. So how, how long can you stay out before you need to kiss again? No, there's no rules, right? I mean, when it says kiss each other with the kiss of love, it's like every third time we see each other. Or like at Bethlehem, I walk into church. There's 40, 50 people who recognize me in my little corner, and I got to go... And when we walk out, we're going to do it again. And you start realizing how silly it is to get too picky, even, even before you cross a culture. I mean, just in, in that culture, you can't force it to mean, like, every time you leave a room and come back in, probably not. Well, then how often? I think Peter would look at me and say, whenever you feel it. And if you don't, we got a problem. Isn't that the point? I mean, you, you don't... He doesn't mean, let's all be hypocrites now. 
and fake our affections for each other. He means real, earnest, heartfelt family affection. I kissed my dad every time I met him. We, I mean, he would leave. He would leave for two, three weeks. He'd come home. I'd meet him at the airport. I'd kiss him, and he'd kiss me. We did that till the day he died. I kissed him a minute before he died. I kissed my dad on the cheek. He kissed me. I try. My boys don't always hug me in a way that makes that easy for me, but I, I get in there as close as I can. <laughs> kiss them on their neck. They're like this. They're taller than I am. You know, get up there and do that. We're going to do that with these boys. Um, and so I'm not, you know, as far as this culture is concerned, I would say what, what is close, if nothing is close, probably we've we got issues. And there are. There are ethnic issues that keep you from <laughs> doing it. I mean, I could say some groups are real kissy and other groups are cool. And, uh, and some are huggers and some are not huggers. And, and I'll just say Peter is, is, is reaching out at, at desiring God. And, and he just wants, I think, as, as we relate to each other, he wants to be real sweet affection for each other. Not just dutiful behaviors of respect. So it is a remarkable way to end this letter. The, the grace of God kind of overflowing with Sylvanus and my wife, maybe, and my son, and all of you kissing each other, and we're, and now so suffer for Jesus. And I'll tell you, if you're in the situation where the fiery ordeal is, like if we were surrounded right now by a mob outside of about a thousand hating, Christian-hating people with machetes, love would cover a multitude of sins in this room. <laughs> it would. We would, we would forget all the foibles that have annoyed us. and We would be so together on our knees. So I love you very much. I love, I love your partnership. I love your participation in this ministry. It means more to me than I can put into words easily that at 70, I am surrounded by so many young, faithful people pulling in the same direction to spread a passion for the supremacy of God. So please know that I do not take for granted your presence here or wherever you happen to live and the spouses who support. Um, I value this camaraderie enormously. I don't know how long, you know, I'll have. And I don't know what it will be like as I fail. You know, I feel strong. I feel way too strong for my grandkids. I, I, I think my grandkids should, should start viewing me as old now so I don't have to play so much. <laughs> but they, they do not assume I'm old and therefore can play everything that they play and soccer and frisbee and board games and card games and wrestling and there are no limitations on grandpa well that's going to change right I mean there comes a point where grandpa can just watch but that'd be cool <laughs> probably not probably not I, I should not resent 
the tiredness I feel after a long day at the grandkid's house, since it's precious. Um, but anyway, here, I, I don't know what that'll look like, and nobody does. But I've watched Desiring God be formed over the last 10 years into what we never dreamed it would be that I have total confidence that's going to be just fine. That is going to be just fine, whatever that looks like. Um, I'm moved when I think of, of those of you, especially in, in advancement. I'm moved by thousands of people who each day feel loved by you. Some, some of you they know, others of you they don't. They feel loved by this ministry. I meet them and they tell me with tears regularly what you mean to them. They put it in different words of, of the impact it's having. I don't know if Scott, you share that beach thing I sent you, that story from last week? No, I didn't send it to you. It's because you're looking funny. Who did I send it to? <laughs> I sent it to Tony. Yeah. Did Tony go? Okay. Well, anyway, I, I'm, we're on the beach day before Thanksgiving in California, right? And uh, visiting my son Abraham, and I'm building the sandcastle with my grandkids. And they're in the water, 59 degrees, the water's freezing. They're total energy. And I'm building a sandcastle. I love to build sandcastles because there's design and you can make, I made a tunnel all the way through, came out one side, the other. I still totally love it. And, and uh, this guy walks up to me, big Hispanic guy, I assume, handsome as all get out. Looked like he was taking care of a disabled Sister, wife, friend, I don't know. She, she was not completely whole. And he was being so loving and kind to her and helping her enjoy the beach. And, and he said, you're John Piper. I said, yep. He said, I want to get in your space, but thank you for desiring God because it has gotten me through some really hard times. And he was totally earnest. I mean, he didn't have to go from awkward to earnest. He was just flat out earnest, thanking me for hard times gotten through with desiring God. And all of you have a hand in that. You should feel so encouraged that the, whatever part of the ministry you do to make that possible, who would have thought standing on a beach the day before Thanksgiving in Manhattan Beach, California, out of the blue, a guy says, you, you got me through with that ministry. So thousands of, of people are, are loving us with their money and they're feeling loved by you. God has given us great work to do and he wants us to do it together. If you have loved ones who are not believers, then you, you know how texts like this just fill you with longing, right? Kiss, the kiss of love, a faithful brother, wife or son greet you in the Lord and you, you have kids or dads or moms or sisters or brothers who they don't, they don't give you the kiss of love. They don't, they're not a faithful brother. They don't send Christian greetings and you realize Christmas time is a time of both and, already, not yet, pain and sorrow. This is the true grace of God. And it has become flesh in Jesus.
So as you celebrate Christmas and you ponder him, remember he is full of grace, God's disposition and action to give you the good you don't deserve, and truth to fill you with light about what that good is about God and about yourself and about the world. Thank you so much for your, for your partnership in the ministry at, at every level. Let's pray. Father, thank you that grace appeared. I praise you that you're a God of grace, that the creator of the universe has a heart of desiring to do us good, and we receive it now this season, and we want it to change us into gracious people that are not just nice to each other, but affectionate to each other in words and deeds, in appropriate cultural demonstrations of what affection looks like in a family of God. Thank you for this food. That's one beautiful expression for Katie and Yia and, and all those who pitched in, Lord, for saying I love you with their hands the way they did. Bless this ministry, Lord. We want it to reach millions more people just because that's the kind of God you are. You are patient, not wanting any of your elect to perish, and therefore there's millions to be touched and reached and rescued with grace. Help us in that, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.